This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you in part by Lightbox Jewelry. Ever heard of lab-grown diamonds? Lab-grown diamonds are essentially chemically identical to natural ones, just made in a laboratory. At Lightbox, they've cracked the science to grow gorgeous gems every time. Check them out at lightboxjewelry.com slash manliness. Use code manliness for $25 off. Again, lightboxjewelry.com slash manliness, code manliness for $25 off. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. You've probably observed families in which one of the kids is super resilient and easygoing, while the other is super sensitive and anxious. Same family, same parents, but two extremely different children. What gives? My guest today says that some kids are like robust dandelions, while others are like fragile orchids. While the fragility of orchid children might seem like a liability in the right circumstances, these kids can actually thrive to an even greater extent than their dandelion peers. His name is W. Thomas Boyce. He's a developmental pediatrician and professor of pediatrics as well as the author of the book, The Orchid and the Dandelion, Why Some Children Struggle and How All Can Thrive. We begin our conversation discussing the respective attributes of dandelion and orchid children and how the increased reactivity of the latter influences their health, emotional well-being, and development. Tom then explains how orchid children can be both the healthiest and sickest of children, depending on the environment in which they are raised. We then discuss the theories as to what causes orchid children to be orchid children, including genetics and environmental factors, and we enter conversation with tips for parents of sensitive children how to help them thrive and succeed. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash orchid. Tom joins you now via clearcast.io. All right, Dr. Tom Boyce, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So you are a professor of pediatrics who studied children's development, and you've postulated that there's a spectrum that kids reside on, where on one end of the spectrum, there are what you call dandelion kids. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have what are called orchid kids. Can you describe what you're talking about? What is a dandelion kid? What do they look like? And what does an orchid kid look like? So we we began years ago trying to understand why there was such variation in children's health responses to the adversities and stressors that they encounter in their lives. And we decided that one way of uh, indexing this would be to bring them into a laboratory circumstance where we would sit them down in front of a previously unknown examiner, and we would ask them to carry out a series of uh, mildly stressful tasks, things like repeating a series of numbers that the examiner says to them, or asking them to watch an emotion-evoking video clip, or having them take a drop of lemon juice on their tongue. And we found that when we monitored the stress response systems that are characteristic of the human body, that there were, there were tremendous differences uh, between children in their responsivity, their reactivity within those systems to these various stressors. And when we began to then study patterns of illness and development within these populations of children that we were studying, we found that the most reactive children in the laboratory in real life had either the best or the worst of the health outcomes, depending upon on the kinds of social settings that they were living in, their families, their communities, their schools. So we began calling these highly reactive, highly sensitive children, orchid children, and then called the children who 
were really the majority of those that we tested in the lab that had very little in the way of response to these minor stressors. We started calling them dandelion children. So dandelions, like a dandelion, these kids, it doesn't matter what environment they find themselves in, they're going to do okay. The orchid kid needs something, like orchids are delicate. They need a certain type of environment to, to prosper. That's right. That's the idea. The, the, the terms actually come from a Swedish word, maskrosbarn, which means dandelion child. And what the Swedes mean by that is a child that can, like the dandelion, thrive in any environment that it encounters. And we coined the, the second term, orchid child, to reflect uh, the opposite of that, which is children who are, are very sensitive and, and responsive to the kinds of environments they encounter. So when you talk about reactivity or sensitivity to stress uh, in an orchid child, what does that look like? I mean, how do you know that a, a child is reacting or being is, or is highly sensitive to stress? Well, in the laboratory, we monitored these two principal stress response systems, which are the cortisol system. Cortisol, of course, being the um, a major stress hormone that's secreted by the adrenal glands signaled from the brain. So we monitored cortisol levels, and we also looked at the autonomic nervous system, which is the fight or flight system that causes, you know, sweaty palms and dilated pupils and increased heart rate. So we had those two stress response systems in the lab that we could monitor that would tell us whether the child was reacting vigorously or or minimally over the course of these minor stressors. So that's how we we find those children in the laboratory. Now in clinical work, finding those kids, obviously we're not going to be testing every child that walks through the door of a clinic. We, we find that the, the kids who are the, the orchid children tend to be shyer. They're, they are kids who are typically shy. They tend to withdraw from novel situations. So uh, going to a birthday party where they don't know many of the kids would be an example of a novel situation that an orchid child might might be more sensitive to and withdraw from. And these orchid children also seem to have more in the way of sensory sensitivities. They have in all, all of the various senses, smell, taste, touch, and so on, they seem to have greater sensitivity than do the dandelion children. Now, listening to this, we've had um, guests on the show talking about autism. Some of these things sound similar to autism. Is there a relation at all between this sensitivity and autism? Well, orchid and dandelion are not, they, they are not diagnoses. They're not diagnoses in the psychiatric sense of, of being, you know, a, a definable mental health disorder. But they do overlap in certain ways with some of the, the traditional psychiatric diagnoses. So the one that you point out is, is a good example. Sometimes children who are somewhere on the autism spectrum do have the same kind of hypersensitivities in the sensory modalities that do these children who we find in the laboratory are orchid children. Okay, that makes sense. So that's a good point to make. This is not like this idea of like an orchid dandelion child is not, you can't go to your you know child psychologist and be like, hey, is my kid an orchid child? They're going to be like, that's not a clinical diagnosis. That's that's right. Okay. So you mentioned something earlier though that's interesting. When, as you describe this hyperreactivity to stress that orchid children have, people hear that and think, 
well, that's not good. You, you, it'd be better to be a dandelion child. But in your research you've done on orchid children, orchid children in some cases do the best in certain situations. Can you talk about this sort of paradox where orchid children can either, you know, depending on the circumstance, do re- either really well, both in health, well-being, et cetera, or poorly? Yes, this, this was the the part of our early findings that have been sustained both in our laboratory and other laboratories around the world. That was that was truly surprising. We we had expected that the children who showed biological uh, high reactivity in the laboratory would be kids that, when encountering major adversities in their real life out in in real social circumstances, would have the highest rates of illness and injury and behavioral disorders and so on. And sure enough, that was true. The, the, the kids who were high in reactivity in the lab and who experienced lots of adversity in their normal everyday lives, those were the kids who were the, the least well, had the most developmental and behavioral problems. But what we hadn't anticipated and, and what really took us by surprise and has been replicated now over and over is that these same kids who are high in reactivity in the laboratory, the so-called orchid children, when they're growing up in very nurturant, supportive, predictable conditions, they don't just have average levels of health. They have the best health of all of the children in our samples. So these seem to be children who have either the best outcomes or the worst outcomes, depending upon the character of the kind of social context in which they find themselves. So orchid children tend to get sicker more in the wrong environment, but they can be the healthiest kid in the right environment. And this dichotomous outcome isn't just about health. You also see it in behavioral outcomes. So in the wrong environment, an orchid child could be the most anxious, most stressed out, but in the right environment, they could be the happiest, most you know, thriving kid there is in a group. That's right. And that, that really is kind of the hidden good news in all of this. It is that the kids that we sometimes worry about as parents or as physicians, uh, teachers, the kids that we worry about most in, in certain circumstances can actually be the healthiest and have the least developmental and behavioral issues of, of any of the children that we contend with. And so this this connection of to health or you know getting sick that relates to the stress response because I, I think what happens when a, someone you when you get stressed out a lot your body's immune system sort of diminishes so I can see how an orchid child would get sicker more often because they're highly sensitive to stress their immune system is going to take a beating. That's right. It's uh, both of these systems that we that we measured in the laboratory, both the cortisol system and the the fight or flight system. Both of those systems have really profound effects on immune competence, and they can alter the the ability of a child to resist pathogens like viruses and bacteria. I thought the interesting thing about that related to bacteria was about cavities. It's not just just eating sweets that causes cavities. It's, you know, the sweets plus bacteria plus stress that causes increase in cavities. One of the studies that we did was to examine caries in in children. And we did this by asking them to donate to us the 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 baby teeth that fall out at about grade one 
We paid them $10 a tooth, which was far above the going rate at, at in their family homes. And they gladly gave us these teeth. And we were able to study both the teeth that were, that were still in their mouths and look at the level of caries that the children had experienced, but also look at the, the microstructure of the, of those deciduous teeth that had fallen out. And we were able to show that the kids who had more in the way of caries were the kids who had uh, greater stressors in their lives and who had greater sensitivity of those teeth by virtue of exposures to cortisol and other kinds of biological factors. And and how soon can you you and your researchers tell if a child is going to be on that orchid spectrum? Like how is it is it, is it at birth or even or is it happen, you have to wait a little bit before you start seeing that? Our studies have primarily been in four to eight-year-old children, so sort of middle childhood. But one of my primary colleagues, Dr. Abby Alcon, who's a professor of nursing at UCSF, has, along with Dr. Brenda Eskenazi, has studied children in farm worker families and has begun to look at reactivity and stress responses on down into infancy. And those studies show what I think most parents and and pediatricians would have suspected that right from birth, there are differences in the, the infant's reactivity and responsivity to the, the changes and perturbations in the environment. So there actually are children that we think we can identify very early in life that have these, these predispositions to high reactivity. And you can tell that with that APGAR test. I remember my kids, as soon as they're born, they're swept away and they do that APGAR test to figure out that sort of thing. They sort of test the response of the, the infant. Yeah. The interesting thing about the APGAR score is that most of the the signs or signals that are used to score the APGAR are uh, signals that are mediated by the stress response system. So it's things like respiratory effort and heart rate and circulation. And, and many of those things are, are actually influenced by these uh, stress response systems. So we, we think that the APGAR score may in fact be a kind kind of index or indicator of a stress response even in the first moments following delivery. So this, if you can see this, if the research is suggesting you can see this high reactivity at birth, that suggests there's like a biological genetic component to it. But, you know, that can lead you down the path of genetic determinisms like, well, you know, that's your genes. There's nothing you can do about it. Is there more going on? Um, is there like a is is the environment and genes sort of working together to determine whether this high reactivity is uh, displayed? Yes, and that's that's exactly right. And you may ask, well, if if there are differences in reactivity even in the first moments of postnatal life, you know, where does the experience part come in? But what we're learning more and more is that there are experiences that the fetus has during intrauterine life just as surely as an infant does during the first six to nine months postnatal life. So we we think that the development of these patterns of orchid or dandelion responses actually begin 
post-conception, and they involve not just biological factors like genetic variation, but they also involve experience and exposures that children have, both during intrauterine life and and then in postnatal life uh, as they go into infancy. It's a matter of gene-by-environment interaction, not simply an effect of genes or an effect of environments in isolation. And that's epigenetics, right? Where the environment influences what genes are expressed. That's that's right. Um, epigenetics, of course, means epi means on top of. So the epigenome is the part of our genome that lies on top of our our actual DNA sequence. And those marks that lie on top of the genome are the things that govern whether a given gene is expressed or not expressed and have a lot to do, we think, with the development of these orchid or dandelion phenotypes. So that can explain, so if, let's say the mother experiences a lot of stress while she's carrying a child, that could turn on some genes in the, the fetus saying, okay, the environment out there is really stressful. You need to get ready for that. So we're going to help you be highly sensitive to stress so you can, so you can notice it when you, when you see it. Yes. Um, that's, that's what we think is going on. Now, the, 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 we're in the very early days of studying stress experiences during pregnancy, during fetal life. But the early evidence is that there may be these epigenetic differences that determine orchid or dandelion phenotypes based on experiences during fetal life and genetic variation that the fetus inherits from his uh, mom and his dad. And this can get really interesting because I've read some stuff about epigenetics where some researchers postulate or theorize that um, even grandparents can influence grandkids based on the stress they experience. I think they talked about Holocaust survivors and the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. And they tend to be uh, more highly reactive to stress. I think that's what it is. But it, it's this is an interesting world that it opens up with epigenetics. It really is. You know, we've we've known for a long time that both uh, differences in genes and differences in environments affect child health and well-being. But up until just in, in, in recent decades, in the last 20, 30 years, we've now begun to actually be able to identify the, the physical locus where genes and environments come together. And that is these, this epigenome, these epigenetic marks that lie uh, on top of the, of the genome. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Fall is all about getting back into a groove after a busy summer. This year, set bigger goals and feel more accomplished with the Peloton Tread. This is not another treadmill. The New York Times says the Peloton Tread is like having a personal trainer come to your house whenever you'd like. I went down to Dallas to a Peloton studio to give this a test run, and I was impressed. First off, the hardware is impressive. It looks like it's right out of the Jetsons. It's got shock-absorbing slat belt, which makes the run very easy. It's not hard on your joints. And adjusting the speed and incline of the tread, super easy. You just have these knobs you spin, so you not to worry about breaking your stride. Then there's the 32-inch HD touchscreen where you watch your class. And the classes, there are tons of classes. They got interval runs. They've got long distance runs. They've got boot camps. So you're going to be like lifting weights and running. They've got yoga, meditation. There's tons to choose from. And the class element is really cool because you can see who else is doing the class with you in real time. And so it adds an element of competition. There's one guy I was doing my class with, Lottery 22, user Lottery 22. We were sort of neck and neck for most of it. But then I was like, I'm not going to let this guy beat me. Picked it up 
beat them. Anyways, if you love to run, you like to do that sort of thing, check out the tread. I think this might be something you would enjoy. Discover the immersive and challenging total body training you can get from the Peloton tread. Go to onepeloton.com. That's O-N-E, Peloton, P-E-L-O-T-O-N.com. Use code MANLINESS to get $100 off accessories of the purchase of a tread. Again, that's one, O-N-E, Peloton.com, code MANLINESS to get $100 off accessories with the purchase of a tread. Also by Policy Genius. Tis the season to elect benefits through your workplace. Most people know open enrollment as decision time for healthcare coverage, but it's also the perfect moment to reassess your life insurance needs. To properly provide for their families, most people need 10x the life insurance coverage than they get through their jobs, which means that your employer life insurance is leaving you underinsured. That's where Policy Genius can help. Policy Genius is the easy way to shop for life insurance plans that's not tied to your job. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. And once you apply, Policy Genius takes care of all the paperwork and red tape for you and the insurance stays with you even if you leave your job. Besides life insurance, you can also find the right home and auto insurance and disability insurance through Policy Genius. So when you're looking at your workplace health benefits this month, make sure to double check your life insurance options. Then go to policygenius.com to get quotes and apply in minutes. Again, that's policygenius.com. Check out, get a quote, apply in minutes. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. And now back to the show. And in one part of the book, you talk about the epigenetics of orchid children is sort of nature's way, way of hedging bets and allows them to survive in a stressful environment. I mean, we think of this sort of like being highly reactive to stress would be maladaptive, but in a way, a weird way, it's kind of adaptive. Can you talk about that? Well, it's adaptive in the, in the sense that if you're growing up in really comfortable, supportive, nurturing conditions, it actually is an advantage to be highly sensitive because then you're, if you will, sort of able to take in more of the goodness that that environment provides for you. So you, you could argue that, that both the best of environments and the worst of environments would be affected by this sensitivity that some children have to those social contexts. We also can think about environments of, of evolutionary adaptedness, you know, back uh, thousands of years ago when children were part of hominid troops that that wandered various continents those those kids you can see how children who were highly reactive and high, highly sensitive might have had uh, bad outcomes under conditions of predation and danger but on the other hand it may have been helpful actually to a, a troop of early early hominids to have individuals who are highly sensitive to the stressors and the dangers that, that may have been out there. On the other hand, during periods of, of quiet and peaceful existence, those same individuals might have thrived. And that, that, uh, provides us with a kind of evolutionary account of, uh, of uh, why these uh, phenotypes might have persisted in those ancient environments. So there's a biological component, a genetic component, but as we've been talking about, uh, the social environment plays a huge role. And the first social environment that most children are put into is a family. But you have the, the chapter where you discuss family and, and the interaction with orchid children, you say, no two children are raised in the same family. What do you mean by that? And what are the implications for orchid children? What I mean by that is that the the differences in uh, gender in birth order in personality 
children in certain ways create the environments of their family. And it's, it's pretty clear that the experience of one child in a given family is not the same as uh, the experience of another child. So a sort of shorthand way of thinking about that is to say that really actually no two children are raised in the same family in the sense that their experiences of their parents, of their sibship, and so on are very different one to the other. The implications of that are that children growing up in the same family can have very, very different health outcomes and developmental outcomes uh, from one sibling to another. It's a common experience of pediatricians that a family comes in for primary pediatric care and, you know, a parent will say, Maybe they have three children that these two kids are healthy all the time, but this one, that one is, is sick most of the time or, you know, has problems of one kind or another. And we think that that may come from these differences in the experience of the family environment that different children have. Right. And it also, yeah, like when, when I, when you, when I read that, I started thinking about my own experience or watching other families. I mean, if a child's born at a certain stage and say the parent's career development, that can influence how the parents behave and whether they're stressed out or not stressed out at home. When they're younger, there's a difference between if a parent's older and they have a child. I thought it was interesting because you talk about the story of you and your sister as an example of same family, but different outcomes because it, it wasn't the same family. Uh, she was more sensitive and she experienced some hard times with your family that you didn't experience. And that affected her and influenced her the rest of her life. And she even ended up taking her own life in adulthood. Yeah, that's right. And of course, I think there were, there were major differences between my sister and myself in our, in our sensitivities to the adversities uh, that we experienced within our family. I, you know, believe in retrospect that my sister was a classical orchid child. And I, and I believe that I was mostly uh, a dandelion child. So our, our differences in sensitivity to the, experiences within our family um, were probably fr- profound. So another social context that that have a big influence on children are uh, is school, when they go off to school. What role do peers play in whether an orchid thrives or, or struggles? Oh, I think they play a major role. First of all, there there is the issue of bullying, which is way too prevalent in our in our schools today it's we're we're gradually becoming aware of it um, of how children treat each other but those experiences that probably are pretty universally experienced among kids in in primary school age groups those experiences are are very different depending upon whether you're an orchid child or a, a dandelion child we also know that there are social hierarchies that are set up within groups of, of school children any kindergarten teacher can tell you this that within a couple of weeks after 20 or 30 five-year-olds are brought together in a novel social group that is a new kindergarten classroom that those children set up a pecking order with some children at the top of that order that are the dominant children and those at the bottom that are the the more subordinate children so there are these experiences of of hierarchical position and bullying and coercion and so on that that very much affect the well-being and the experience of of one child versus another teachers also uh, can can dramatically influence those experiences right so those sort of highly stressful situations like that 
could cause an orchid child to flounder. But if he's in a, if if they were in a better environment, they could actually thrive and do well in a school. That's right, and we we actually have have found that in in some of our studies uh, that were done in Berkeley, California primary schools, kindergarten classrooms. Our our research assistants kept coming back into the lab and saying, you know. This class is very different from that other class and describing to us these profound differences in the way that the, in the cultures that the teachers set up. And we began seeing that, that some teachers almost cynically use the, uh, the social hierarchies that kids set up as a means of behavior control within their classrooms, while other teachers go out of their way to be sure that the kids that, that are at the bottom of those hierarchies are having positive beneficial experiences as well. Doing things like, uh, showing to the class the, the special capabilities of those children that are in the subordinate positions. So the sensitivities and and abilities of, of school teachers turn out to be very crucial to the outcomes that children experience in school settings. And what about parents? Like what if there's a parent who's listening and they, they got a hunch that their kid is highly reactive to stress? They've noticed some of those things. There's a social, their novel social situation, they're shy, they hide, things like that. So they think, well, maybe my kid's an orchid kid on that, you know, that sort of orchid side of the spectrum. Any advice that for for those parents who have who have sensitive children? Yeah. So in the book, there's one chapter that deals with strategies that seem to be helpful that parents use to help children with these high uh, sensitivities. And interestingly enough, they're, they're the same strategies that very sensitive, good teachers use to help children with those same kinds of, of hypersensitivities. We talk about six strategies, which have the the happy coincidence of, of forming the mnemonic ORCID, O-R-C-H-I-D. And those are beginning at the top with O, own true self, the, the way in which the parent recognizes and honors the expression of the child's own true self. I think one of the highest responsibilities that we have as parents is to allow each child to come forth and, and, and express who that child is in honest and, and open ways. The R stands for routines. We've also found that orchid children seem to thrive in conditions that are predictable and routine, even monotonous at times. That seems to be something that is helpful to orchid children. The C stands for caritas, the Latin word that means uh, steadfast love. We all strive as parents to love all of our children, but this kind of steadfast uh, support and love provided to orchid children seems to have uh, especially profound effects on them. The H is for human uh, differences. Some families try to obscure or blur uh, the differences between children. The families that are the most helpful to orchid children are those where human differences are celebrated and expressed openly. The I is for imaginative play. Some people think of play as kind of trivial child uh, activity. It is not. It's it's really profoundly important in the lives of children. And having the opportunities to have this kind of imaginative play seems especially important to orchids. 
And finally, the D is for danger. One of the most difficult things to do as a parent of an orchid child is to decide when to push the child into situations that feel dangerous to the child versus allowing them to withdraw from those experiences. So it's things like if a I mentioned earlier going to a birthday party where a child doesn't know many of the children. Parents have to make a decision with orchid children in those circumstances about whether this is a circumstance where we want to push that child, nudge them forward into experiencing a victory over that, over that uh, concern or fearfulness, or is this a circumstance where we want to allow that child to withdraw? So those are six kind of uh, strategies that parents seem to use that seem to be helpful to all children, but are especially important to orchid children. Yeah, I think it works for all children. As I was listening to that, it made me think another you know, key point is that recognizing differences between your kids. Oftentimes think parents think, well, like, you know, it worked for this first kid. It's going to work for kid number two. Probably not. So you have to adapt on the fly. I'm curious, what have you guys done research on what uh, development for an orchid child looks like in adulthood? Like what happens to these highly sensitive kids as they get you know into their 20s and 30s? Well, if we study it at the level of, of stress reactivity, those biological responses that we talked about earlier, if anything, it appears that one's position on the spectrum of reactivity tends to become even more committed in the transition from childhood to adulthood. Children who are highly reactive tend to be even more solidly high reactivity as they get into adolescence and even more so in the transition into adulthood. Now, in adulthood, we also begin to develop coping mechanisms and and approaches to dealing with stress and adversity that may be, you know, profoundly helpful to us and uh, may make a, an orchid uh, individual a far more adapted than that individual might have been during childhood. But we think that that the profile, at least biologically, of being an orchid or a dandelion on that spectrum of reactivity, that tends to become even deeper and more committed as individuals go into adult life. But with the proviso that that these uh, ways of, of coping and, and dealing with stress uh, become ever more uh, elaborate and effective as we get to be adults. What do those like positive coping mechanisms look like? Well, I think, you know, I think in, in certain ways they are the, uh, the same strategies that parents use, but we, we gradually begin to learn over time as orchid individuals that, that, uh, those same strategies we can use on ourselves. So, for example, feeling open to uh, recognizing and affirming who you are as a person, allowing those those differences to be expressed and not suppressed, having uh, a relatively routine uh, life where things are predictable from one week uh, to the next, from one day to the next, so that these routines that are effective and helpful in orchid children can also be instituted by an orchid adult. You know, taking care of and and finding uh, the kind of support and love uh, that an individual needs within an individual life. All of these kinds of things that parents provide early in life, we begin to learn to to provide to ourselves later in life. 
So yeah, I imagine a person who's like on that orchid side of the spectrum, they would probably choose a job that has pretty you know stable routine. They want to have a stable you know family life because that'll provide that that sort of stability that they they thrive in. And I imagine orchids, uh, there's mal you know there's maladaptive ways to cope with stress and you know things like alcohol or drugs or things like that, and that would just be even worse for an orchid adult. That's right. That's that's. Exactly right. Well, Tom, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, the book was uh, published in in January 2019 by Knopf. It is out there and available. Um, That's probably the best summary of the work. The book also includes a listing of the scientific papers on which the book is based, both my own and, and that of other investigators. So I would say the book and the and the papers and perspectives that are referenced in the book would be the best place to begin. Fantastic. Well, Tom Boyce, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure on this end as well. Thank you, Brett. My guest today was W. Thomas Boyce. He's the author of the book, The Orchid and the Dandelion. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. And be sure to check out our show notes at aom.is slash orchid, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives. There's over 550 episodes there and also thousands of articles we've written over the years about parenting, how to be a better husband, better father, physical fitness, personal finance, you name it, we got it. Also, while you're there, make sure to sign up for a daily or weekly newsletter so you never miss a new article. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android Android or iOS, and you can start enjoying new episodes of the AOM Podcast ad-free. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. <laughs>